At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Good morning, guys. Good to be with you all. My name is C.T. Eldridge, the campus pastor here at Woodside Lapeer, if we haven't met yet. And it is a joy to share with you from God's word as we continue to worship him. Um, May he speak to us through the truth of the scriptures and the power of the gospel. Um, We're continuing this morning in our sermon series in the letter of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, Jesus' closest disciple during his ministry on earth. Peter is now several decades later, likely writing to some churches that had been established in modern-day Turkey, in the Middle East. And we have the the benefit of being able to receive from the apostle himself, Jesus' right-hand man. So, Lord, help us. Open our hearts. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Some very timely words And I'm guessing that the team that puts together our sermon calendar um, knew that Tuesday was election day, and so they kind of lined things up so that this 1 Peter um, passage would would land where it has. Uh, But it's going to be very timely for us. Um, Nevertheless, still, I want us to see the bigger picture within this letter leading up to chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, because we are in a section of the letter that's quite different from where we've been uh, over the first few weeks of the series. And so I got another slide for us to see kind of an overview of Peter's letter leading up to where we are this morning. And we can see kind of the differentiation um, that happens over the course of these different sections. Um, so again, we began in chapter, th- uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 with praise to God. The apostle begins his instruction, not with instruction, Uh, but with worship, and he led us in worship. And in all of those verses, he gives no commands. He doesn't, in other words, he doesn't tell us to do anything. He's just worshiping God. Praise to God for new birth we have in Christ. Praise to God for his sovereignty over his suffering. Praise to God for his fulfillment of the prophecies. That was chapter one, verses three through 12. Then in chapter one, verses 13 through chapter two, verse three, there's a shift And he does start to give some commands, specifically some commands related to our responsibility to God and our responsibility to one another. Our responsibility to God is that we are to hope in him and we are to live holy lives before him. And our responsibility to one another is that we love one another. And so he issues apostolic commands by the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us what to do. And then in chapter two, verse four, through chapter two, verse 10, he shifts once more. And for those few verses there, he's no longer telling us what to do. He's telling us who we are as the people of God. He's affirming who we are. We are a holy priesthood, he says. We are living stones being built up into the household of God, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. We are a royal priesthood, he goes on to say. We are a people of God's own possession. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. He doesn't tell us to do anything. He tells us who we are. And then in chapter two, verse 13, he shifts once more. 
And he says, in light of who you are, we are to now live honorably before the watching world. Conduct yourselves with honor before the Gentiles. And so he's going to issue now, going forward, several more commands telling us how to live before a watching world. We talked about last week, our lives are our witness to the gospel. Yes, we speak the gospel, unquestionably so. But oftentimes, the world is not willing to listen until they've seen the power of the gospel in our lives. And that's exactly what we're gonna see in these verses. Our lives have got to change. Our lives have got to look different or our words are gonna fall flat, all right? So I'm gonna read for us the verses we read last week all the way through chapter two, verse 17. So 1 Peter chapter two, verse 11, through 1 Peter chapter two, verse 17. There, the Holy Spirit writes, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they still may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do citizens of heaven relate to the rulers of the world? How do we, exiles and strangers that we are, exist in the societal structures and governing systems of this foreign land? And let's raise the stakes a little bit. What about when we don't like the rulers over us? And what about when they don't like Christianity? How do we get along in such a society? Well, as it regards the apostles' instruction for us conducting ourselves honorably among the Gentiles, these are the first set of questions that Peter's going to address. As Christians, our primary nationality is that we are Christians. As Peter put it in chapter two, verse nine, we are a holy nation. And this means our deepest allegiance is not to Michigan, It's not to America, it's to God. And yet, here we find ourselves in Michigan and America as heavenly immigrants, pilgrims passing through. But despite the potential conflict between our dual citizenship, despite the potential conflict between our duty to God and our duty to country, the apostle says our aim in this world is to be good citizens. 
God's people are good citizens. Heavenly people are to be exemplary earthlings. Think of the incredible example that the prophet Daniel gives us. So you recall that in the Old Testament, after God established the people in the promised land under Joshua, eventually the monarchy was established under David. Then the temple was built under his son Solomon, but then things go way wrong. Israel rebels against God, and so they are sent into exile in Babylon. The whole nation is deported to another country. Well, the prophet Daniel was a young man during the time of the exile, and the book of Daniel tells some of the story about how Daniel got along in this foreign nation of Babylon. And for sure, there was conflict between Daniel and the Babylonian leaders, and there was difficulty getting along in this pagan Babylonian culture. But Daniel's life was so exemplary. His integrity was so solid. His wisdom was so profound that he was eventually promoted to the number two seat in Babylon. Daniel's example shows us that it's not always easy. There is often friction between the values of God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. But Daniel's example also shows us that we're called to represent heaven by being good citizens on earth. We're called to do everything we can to be faithful to God first and foremost and be faithful to our country. God's people are good citizens. So what does this look like? How can we fulfill this call from God on our lives. Well, in these verses, the apostle gives us three practices, three practices for living out heavenly citizenship on earth. The first thing he says is, submit to your rulers. Submit to your rulers. Look once more at verse 13. Peter begins this section by saying flat out, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So Peter, bold as the apostle often was, breaks out the S word, be subject. This command is also often translated submit. The command to submit or be subject is like a four-letter word to our freedom-loving ears as Americans. But despite our obsession with autonomy and despite our legacy of revolution, this apostolic call could not be clearer. Subject yourself to the governing authorities, whether it be to the highest official in the land, the emperor, the king, the president, or whether it be to the lower officials, governors, judges, mayors, etc. Our default posture toward these rulers is to be one of submission and obedience, not resistance, not opposition. Now, you may be thinking, okay, easy enough. All I've got to do is follow the laws of the land, and I'll be good. In other words, it doesn't matter how I personally feel about our rulers or how I talk about them as long as I obey, as long as I'm subject to them. But jump down to the end of this passage. In verse 17, Peter adds to our responsibility to governing authorities. He says there simply, Honor the emperor. 
And the experience of honoring a person goes deeper than our external conformity to their wishes. No, honoring someone relates to the posture of our hearts towards that person. So the apostle says it's not enough to submissively obey the laws of our lawmakers. We must also honor them from our hearts. And this certainly doesn't mean we have to agree with them about everything, certainly not. These first century Christians would not have agreed with everything the Roman emperor did and believed. And yet, still, the apostle calls them to obey their laws and honor them from their hearts. And Peter next gives the reason we are to honor and submit like this. He says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the emperor and his governors. For the Lord's sake, we do this, he says. In other words, it's not because our president or governors are super special divine figures who are inherently worthy and that's why we should obey them. No, in fact, Peter refers to them humbly as human institutions. The people who fill these roles are just people. In fact, he later says in verse 17, honor everyone. Everyone is worthy of being treated with honor and dignity as a human. So it's not like kings and presidents and governors are specially chosen divine figures, and so we should submit to them. No, Peter says, submit to them for the Lord's sake. It's our heavenly allegiance to God that informs and motivates our earthly obedience to presidents and governors and the rest. And so we've got to ask ourselves, in light of God's word, what is your heart's posture towards our civic authorities? Are your fists clenched in resistance? Are your teeth gritted in opposition? Is your heart angry with resentment? Does your mouth speak with disrespect toward your rulers? If so, we must examine our hearts in light of God's word. Subject yourself to every human institution. Honor the emperor, honor the president, whether he's the guy you voted for or not. Honor the governor, whether she's the candidate you voted for or not. This command cuts both ways, doesn't it? Left and right. Conduct yourselves with honor among the Gentiles by submitting yourself to, yes, even Gentile rulers so they may see our good conduct and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So this is a part of our witness to the outside world. As good citizens on earth, the default setting of our hearts is to honor and obey the rulers of the earth. Secondly, the apostle calls us to do good. Do good. So we aren't simply to obey the laws of the land. We are to work for the good of the land, to do the things that will contribute to the prosperity of our, earthly, of our earthly society. So look at how Peter puts it in verse 17. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So often, people wrestle over the question, what's God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What job should I have? Where should I live? Well, this is wonderful that the apostle gets really clear on this point. This is God's will for your life. Do good. Actively engage in things that promote goodness, that promote the general welfare of our world. And when you do this, you're putting to silence your critics. So 
Christianity as a religion, do we have some critics? You bet we do. (laughs) And it's always been this way. Our day and age isn't special. Peter's writing 2,000 years ago, and he says there's people who are speaking against us arrogantly. Bigots, hypocrites, money-loving, abusive, irrational, etc. These are all labels and accusations I've personally heard made against us. And some of them rightly so. We deserved it. We are not perfect as a church, and we've earned some of these rebukes the world has thrown at us. But the question is, how are we going to silence them? How are we going to respond to them? Peter says you respond to them by doing good. You silence them by doing good, not shaming them for being so worldly, not arguing with them against their irrationality, not avoiding them and leaving them to their own devices. No, he says you respond to them by doing good. You silence them by doing good. When I was in university, I was a part of this distinguished dignified, upstanding organization called Beta Theta Pi Fraternity. (laughs) You can tell I'm kidding. This organization was actually pretty pagan and debaucherous. Think Animal House, if you've ever witnessed that. That was us. I was not a Christian at the time. It was the start of one school year during what we called Rush, when new people would actually sign up to try to join one of these many fraternities. And as a fraternity, we would meet and talk about the different people and whether or not we wanted them in. It was really troubling looking back on it, very judgy and superficial, but that's the way it was. Anyway, this one fall, one of the guys who came to one of our rush parties and wanted to join was a Christian. He was openly and faithfully a follower of Christ. He talked about his faith. He lived differently, as you can imagine, and he had a lot of critics in our fraternity. Many, many guys did not want him in, and they were vocal about it. This guy's a pansy. He makes things awkward. He's weird, and many other insulting things were said about him. But somehow, he got in. I don't know if it was his grades, and as a fraternity, we needed a GPA boost or what, but we gave him a bid, and he accepted And from that time forward, this brother silenced his critics by doing good. He came to every party we threw and was the sober driver for anybody who needed a ride. He came to all of our social events and was a joy to be around, laughing, talking, cutting up, having a good time without indulging in sin. At the time, I did not know that was possible. He befriended and showed respect even to the most hardened guys in our house. And we had some impressively hardened guys. And by the time he graduated and left campus, there wasn't a guy more highly respected and well-liked in our entire fraternity of 130 guys. Church, we don't silence our critics by fighting back. We silence our critics by doing good. That's God's will for us. This means we must become extraordinarily active in doing good. The application is more than just affirming good, but actively doing what is good. There must be a practical, physical, lived out goodness by us before the world. And so part of the question we must ask is, what good should we be doing? In her book, All That's Good, author Hannah Anderson asked this question, Are you pursuing what is safe 
or what is good? It's a profound question because many of us only pursue in the world doing what is safe for us and for our families. Instead of looking at injustice, evil, wrongdoing, and committing ourselves to be agents of reconciliation in the world, doing whatever is good, it's risky. Sometimes we shirk back. But church, we should be first and foremost on the front lines of working for the common good. The history of the church in many ways is in fact the story of the church advancing the common good through hospitals, educational centers, welfare organizations, and many other means to care for the poor and needy and advance the common good in society. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, she says this, quote, by the fourth century, Christians had invented hospitals, established welfare systems, and cared for the needy. She continues, indeed, fourth century theologian John Chrysostom argued from scripture that failing to give charitably amounted to robbing the poor. And as Christianity spread, so did concern for the least in society. Could that be said of us today? Are we known in the world for our concern for the least in the world? It starts with each one of us doing what we can to love and serve our neighbors and then our community and our city and beyond. We must care for the unborn. We must care for the orphan. We must care for the women who would give their unborn away or need to give their children away. We must care for those who can't care for themselves, the poor, the sick, the neglected, the abused, the immigrant, the trafficked, the oppressed, the marginalized, every person within our influence that we have the opportunity to serve and love. This is our calling. This is God's will for our lives. Do good. And when we do good, we disarm the verbal accusations of people that would say we are bigots, narrow-minded, judgmental, and hateful. God's people are good citizens by submitting ourselves to the authorities, by doing good for our society, and finally, living to serve. Live to serve. Look again at verse 16. The apostle says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, when Peter here uses the language of freedom, he's not using it so much to talk about civil freedoms, like the freedom to assemble or the freedom of speech. He's using it to refer to spiritual freedom because those civil liberties were not something that these first century Christians would have thought about. They did not have the freedom of speech to speak out against the emperor. They would have been thrown to the lions. What Peter primarily has in mind here is our freedom in Christ. In Christ, we are free from the Old Testament law because Christ fulfilled the law. In Christ, we are free from the power of sin because Christ broke the power of sin through his resurrection and the giving of his Holy Spirit. And Peter says, live as free people. Embrace your freedom you have in Christ, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, just because you are free in Christ doesn't mean you are free to do whatever you want. 
Like saying, Jesus is my Lord, I don't have to do what any earthly ruler says. Or Jesus freed me from the law, I can live as lawlessly as I want. No, that is what the apostle calls using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In fact, Peter says, we've been set free in order to serve. So this is the paradox, this almost contradiction. We are free in Christ in order to serve others. Our freedom isn't so that we can do whatever we want, live for ourselves. No, our freedom is so that we can serve God and fulfill the needs of our neighbors. Peter says, live as people who are free to serve. And think of Jesus. Think of how Jesus approached not just government, but think of the way he approached the very people who lived as his enemies. When we look to Christ, we see him who set aside his freedom in order to serve. Jesus was free to judge and dismiss his disciples. They had blown it time after time. Instead, however, Jesus used his freedom to wash their feet. And Jesus was free to condemn the corrupt and cowardly governing authorities in Jerusalem and Judea. But what did he do? He stood before Herod, he stood before Pilate and the chief priests and allowed himself to be slandered, abused, beaten, and executed. He never spoke a word of disrespect to those governing officials. Jesus, out of his freedom, gave himself for every one of us, poor, broken, sinful people. It took a violent death as an innocent man to serve us and save us from our sins. So Jesus is not just a model for how we are to live. He is our very righteousness, empowering us by his spirit to live lives of service and sacrifice in the midst of a pagan culture. Friends, I urge you to consider Christ and come to him in faith because he has given himself and lived to serve the very people that hated, betrayed, and rebelled against him. But the good news is that everyone who turns to him and trusts in him will be received, forgiven, and freed to serve. And if we embrace this Christ-like life of service, then we will see God glorified and feared in amazing ways in our society. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Imagine if the church, imagine if the church, God's people were known more for their acts of service and their work for the common good instead of just a voting block to be used by politicians to advance their campaign hopes. Imagine if God's people put their feet to work to deal with the needs of our society. Poverty, homelessness, abandonment, sickness, sex trafficking, racism, and many other evils are amongst us. If we put our feet to work, how would our world be changed? What if instead of mirroring our culture, spewing of vitriol and hatred toward people we disagree with, what if the church rose above that by speaking words of honor, respect, humility, deference to each other? How would we be known? I have to think Jesus would be deeply pleased 
and that we would reflect a more compelling, beautiful gospel that would cause the onlooking world to be curious about the Savior we love. I have to believe they would look at us and think, what has gotten into you guys? Why do you care about the careless? Why do you give to the point of sacrifice? Why is your heart moved to care for people that aren't related to you, that don't look like you? Why are you different? And we can tell them, it is all because of Jesus. It is all because of the power of his resurrection and his Holy Spirit transforming our lives. We are just as broken as anybody, but the Savior came to us and transformed us, and he wants to transform you. May many see us, and we be the light of the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you, and we thank you, God. We thank you for the opportunity we have in the world. There is much to complain about. There is much to lament. There are many things that annoy us about where we live and what time period we live in. But Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity that in the midst of this madness, we as a people could bear witness to the power of the gospel in the things we say, and in the way we live. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in each one of us by the power of your Spirit, that we could live lives of humility, lives of goodness, and lives of service. Lord, we want the world to see, and the world needs to see, the power of the gospel, the compelling power of Christ crucified and resurrected. They need to see it, God, and so do this work in us. We come before you and confess our inadequacy. We confess our neediness. We need your wisdom. We need insight into your word. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to fill us and lead us. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the one we have to look to, the way he set before us, the trail he blazed for us, bearing his cross, walking in strength, walking in humility. God, help us to follow him and bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.